0: Will who? Bulk? Oh. Well, it is March the 7th, and we are talking about the Gospel of Luke. This is Lesson 21 in the Disciple Workbook. Okay, so themes in Luke. Um, women figure really prominently. So in Matthew, all the communication happens to Joseph. In Luke, it all happens to Mary. Um, And consider the Bruce stories. And not only is Mary involved, Elizabeth is involved. And you get these interesting pairings because Zechariah, John the Baptist's father, who is a priest who can't believe an angel. This, again, not such so subtle commentary on clergy, right? His wife, Elizabeth, immediately gets it and the priest doesn't get it. This is important, right? He utters this song, but Mary got a song. The Magnificat. Hers is much longer. There's a prophet named Simeon, and if you, if you grew up doing the Daily Office or if you've ever done Compline before, y- you say, you know, at last my eyes have seen the Savior. This is from Simeon. But there's also Anna. So it's almost like Luke goes to pains to balance the men and the women. A man talks, a woman talks. A man talks, a woman talks. Um, Luke is the gospel, in which we find out how Jesus didn't work every day. Women paid for it. Out of their own means, or out of the means of their husbands, with their husbands' consent. See, this is a a mystery, right? Because if their husbands consented, the husbands would have been named as the patrons. So... It's interesting that Luke mentions the women as the patrons. This is pretty, sorry, pretty gender-forward. Pretty gender-forward. There's a classic story about gender roles, Mary and Martha. This happens only in Luke. If you ever have a test and it involves women and it's a gospel, probably Luke, probably. There's a few in John. the classic bit, right, is that Mary is sitting at Jesus' feet listening, which is th- the exact posture a student adopts with their rabbi. So rabbis sit at, sit, sit uh, maybe in a chair, or they stand and you sit at the rabbi's feet to sort of soak it in. Martha is entertaining people at her home. She's hosting it. Apparently the two girls own the home. That's very gender-forward, by the way. Um, and... M- Martha gets frustrated because Mary won't get up and do the hospitality. She's sitting and listening. And she gets so frustrated she says to Jesus, like, she won't get up. Tell her to get up. And and, and Jesus says, No, no, Mary's chosen the better thing, and that won't be taken to her Martha, Martha Martha, you're worried about many things. Right? The classic sermon, I'm sure, is about type A and type B personalities. Right? And usually you hear that sermon, and it says, like, don't be so type A. Let me tell you, I'm really grateful for the type A people. They do stuff. (laughs) (laughs) They get stuff done. They don't just sit around. This is, like, really important. This story has been used to beat me up my whole religious life because I'm not contemplative enough. I'm up doing the dishes. Thank God people do the dishes. Uh, Instead, though, this is likely an interesting commentary. See, women were not a allowed in general to be disciples. You ever seen Yentl? <laughs> See, Yentl can't go to the yeshiva to study the Torah. She's a woman. So what she does is she unconvincingly dresses as a man, <laughs> but fools everybody. Right. Here is Mary, not even pretending to be a man. She sits to be a disciple. Gender equity. And Jesus doesn't seem to slow down at all. Martha, the sister, says, Jesus, there's a lot of work to do. Let's have the woman fulfill the role first. And Jesus sort of says, (laughs) no. So it is less about it's less about type A and type B and more about women's equity in the early church. And that's an interesting thing because that's a scathing social commentary embedded in just a little type scene that we normally misread. Jesus doesn't say Martha should sit and listen. He sort of says, don't expect Mary to get up just because she's a woman. She's chosen to be a disciple of the rabbi and this is what she's doing right now. Now, we all know that if no one did any hospitality, it would not work. So clearly, Jesus is not belittling waiting when he says she's chosen the better thing. He seems to be saying instead, don't make her get up because she's a woman. In fact, it would be really great if some of the men disciples would get up and do some work. (laughs) I mean, that could follow quite naturally. That may be unconvincing for you. <laughs> this is bold, though. Women did not sit at the feet of rabbis. They did not. They did not. And 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 Mary does, and she's not chided. I mean, that's that's it's very, very progressive. Jesus. That would be a subversive read, yeah, it sure would be. well remember, and you'll, you'll find this out when you read the letters of Paul, right? Paul gets a really bad reputation for being for, for gender bits. so the Paul reveals that Priscilla is an apostle. You thought only men could be apostles. that's what traditions told you. Priscilla's an apostle, that's in the letter to the Romans and in uh, the Acts of the Apostles. Um, Junia is named a deacon. I mean, these there are women leaders in the earliest Christian community. And what happens as um, the community develops is they start to take on more uh, cultural norms, and they have become increasingly less radical and more normal. So maybe Luke's mom was involved in the Christian community, or maybe Luke knew one of the early women that held some leadership in prominence, and he's writing this gospel at a time when women are falling out of favor as leaders. I mean, we don't, we, 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 d- we don't know, but women play prominent roles in Luke. And, you know, is this interesting thing about the Bible I- in general. Um, like, we've all read it, but it's really easy to read it and hear what your pastor told you it says instead of actually interfacing with the words. I don't know if you've had that experience before. That's not new to our generation, particularly because these people in general are illiterate and this letter gets read out loud. So what do they notice? I don't know. Depends on what the reader highlights. I, I don't know if that's okay. I'm not trying to say that, r- that, that Luke is some radical proto-feminist book, but Luke is pretty radical about inclusion, especially on women. Your suspicion is very good, right? I mean, Luke is a Greek name, and if it's the the person named in the Acts of the Apostles, this is a physician who travels sometimes with Paul, sometimes doesn't. Historically, he's the founder of icons, so the the tradition of religious iconography goes back to St. Luke, and the tradition says that the pictures of the saints, like Thomas and Peter, came from Luke's firsthand experience. Those those icons are not creatively done, they're copied. And the copies are supposed to go all the way back to to Luke. And um, Luke most assuredly is writing at least to a mixed audience that is Jewish and Gentile. Um, But but perhaps the preponderance of the audience is Gentile. And, And this emphasis on women is not necessarily a Gentile value though. This, again, is a very radical vision of equality. That Mary can be a disciple. That's that's a big deal. You notice also that (coughs) women are the first witnesses in every gospel. No gospel denies this to the resurrection, which makes them the first evangelists and apostles because they go tell the men, right? The men hear from the women. And Luke is interesting because when the women... Go and tell the men, the men consider it an idle tale, <laughs> which is a very gender pejorative term, right? <laughs> and, and and they dismiss the good news of Jesus Christ as an idle tale. And, and it's hard to not hear the gender typing that goes into that. To this day, idle tale. I heard that phrase growing up anyway. Busybody. That only, you know, men aren't called busybodies. Does that make sense, what I'm saying? And men don't tell idle tales. They do, don't get me wrong, but they're not described as such, right? (coughs) There you go. There you go. Um, What else is there to say about women in Luke that may be, that may be, that may be good. Again, big, big, big dramatic inclusion, especially compared to, to Matthew and to, uh, to Mark. Um, magnificat is helpful as to highlight, right? That's, that's almost paraphrasing Hannah. That's in 1 Samuel. Remember, s- Hannah can't get pregnant, and then she does. <laughs> she gives her baby to the temple, and she has this long song that she composes, and the Magnificat is a, is a mirror of that. Um, Luke also really includes some culturally despised people, those being the Samaritans. There's not a lot of Samaritan mention in Matthew or Mark. In fact, yeah, I don't remember them being mentioned. The Samaritans show up in John at one point, um, but they really are prominent in Luke a couple of times. Um, Jesus passes through Samaria, which, by the way, is a Jewish no-no. Jewish people usually would circumnavigate Samaria, which was really out of the way geographically. The reason being is that the Samaritans, remember, were created when the Assyrian Empire took the northern ten tribes and sort of made them chicken catchatory, imported Iranians and Turks and um, Hittites and Ammonites and just sort of made this goo of people without a common language. and and, uh, They didn't worship at the temple in Jerusalem. They worshiped at Mount Gerizim. Uh, They only read the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Um, And they didn't read any other books. They probably had different accents than the people in Judea because they're ethnically from all over the place. And they weren't just viewed as like podunk hillbillies because that's a, that's a kind of prejudice that's around. And it's really hard to describe. They just were really despised. I mean, it, it was like they were like pretenders and sometimes that was worse than somebody that wasn't even trying. So Jews had nothing to do with Samaritans. I, mean I was born in a hospital called Good Samaritan and we get the story Good Samaritan But that's an oxymoron. There's no such thing as a good Samaritan. They're all bad. And in in Luke, you know, um, ten lepers get healed and only the Samaritan comes back. And then there's that story of the good Samaritan, which we often think of as, hey, you just help people, right? You just help people. And, And While it kind of means that, it certainly means a whole lot more. I've told you this in church two years ago. It's not that memorable, so I'll tell you again, if that's okay. I'm going to retell the story using cultural types today. I'm on my way to diocesan council in Waco. And a few blocks away from the convention center, I get carjacked, because Waco is a dangerous place. And I'm left in the street, bleeding. I've been shot They drove away my expensive Prius, and and there I am bleeding. In my collar, no less, the first car that comes by is a priest. It's Bishop Andy Doyle. He knows me because he's my bishop. He sees me bleeding in the street. He would like to help me, but he realizes that if he does that, council can't start on time, and there's a thousand delegates. I mean, the bishop is the council. So, of course, what he decides to do is go to the convention center. His cell phone battery is dead, so he will have to use somebody else's phone or the landline and call the police. So off he goes. The next car is the senior warden of St. Thomas. St. Thomas who knows the person in the street and, of course, knows she'll be the fiduciary responsibility when he dies, so she's very interested in helping him. However, the priest told her that she had to vote at council and be at all the business sessions, so she knows what's a couple of minutes. If I help him and I get to council late, he'll excoriate me. He'll withhold communion from me. She goes on to the convention center. The third car, and you thought we got this guy, and you were wrong. The third car is Osama bin Laden. And he, by the way, is dressing in drag and transgender, and he has AIDS. He went to the bathroom number two and did not wash his hands. And in the car is a load of dynamite because he's going to blow up diocesan council. That's his plan. He stops at the stop sign. I mean, he didn't want to get a ticket, right? I mean, he's got dynamite in the car. So he looked over and he sees this bleeding priest and he initially thinks, too bad I won't blow him up too. And, and then he has this like seizure of compassion and for whatever reason pushes over the dynamite and puts the priest in the vehicle and drives him to the hospital and makes a hefty down payment on the emergency room. And Jesus asks in the story, "Which one was neighbor to the hurt man?" Of course, the answer is they were all neighbors. I don't know if you ever thought about this answer. I mean, I have lived in my house three years, and there are people within two houses of me I've never talked to. Not because they didn't welcome, they didn't pour out the welcome wagon. I mean, we just got busy lives, you know. I think we're good neighbors. I don't let my dog poop in their yard or anything like that, but. I don't know what they look like. (laughs) I'm not even sure I've seen them. I'm neighbors to those people, though, you know? Um, In some ways, maybe Jesus is asking the question, right, who acted like the neighbor you want to have instead of who acted like the neighbors you do have? (laughs) Well, if you hurt, you would probably want the Samaritan to help you, not so fast, because if you were hurt, some of you, like me, might rather die than have Osama bin Laden help you. Or someone you're related to. You, you <laughs> see, the story functions in an interesting way there, right? Um, b- b- because it, it also sort of says that when you're a marginalized person, how do you how do you become a non-marginalized person? Well, y- you have to give somebody something. You have to offer restitution. You have to be able to help somebody. And if no one, if you're never allowed to do that, then you can never be equals. It's really like you can never be. Fully forgiven or reconciled until you're willing to accept from somebody else. I don't like that because I like being in control in relationships. I like giving the gifts. I don't like receiving them. Sometimes I have to say, "Well, the gift I'm giving you is taking yours," <laughs> which is so sad. It's so sad. I'm glad I'm the only one like this, <laughs> um, but it is something to think about, right? There's people who have heard us before and we're not willing to accept anything from them because it's too risky. And of course, as long as we're like that, the relationship will never change. Is all of that in the parable? I sort of think so. And, and I, I sort of think there's this interesting bit about surprise, about the people who, um, whew, wow, the people that we have really strong stereotypes again. I mean, this happens over and over again in the Bible anyway. They end up doing the surprising thing the dirty, nasty Samaritan or the Canaanite women like we talked about in the Hebrew Bible. You know, the uh, the centurion who's a Gentile has more faith than the people in Israel. Right. So this is a this is a theme here. Notice that the person asking the question of Jesus, who is my neighbor, won't say the Samaritan. Because it's like a gross word and he's not happy with the story. He says the one who showed mercy. So this is a dramatic inclusion. <laughs> In Luke, um, not only is there inclusion, there's, there's sort of like it's never too late in Luke. So this is the one book that's got the insurrectionist crucified next to Jesus, and they hurl insults at him. See, in, in Matthew, they both insult him. In Luke, one of them tells the other one to shush and then says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus says, deal, <laughs> you know, <laughs> this is an uh, interesting thing. And, and we don't even know the tone of voice in which he said, remember me when you come into your kingdom. I don't know if you, w- you thought about that, right? I mean, it's clear they're all, they're all dying right then, <laughs> you know, it's really clear. So, so what is he really saying? I mean, we just don't know. And Jesus is magnanimous enough to say, okay, y- y- you know, that's, that, that's an interesting thing. Um, Luke has a lot of thoughts about poor folks, poverty, and money. I hope that's okay to say. Um, Again, there's money-based parables that the other ones don't have at all. Um, And this is the gospel where Jesus says, Blessed are the poor, not the poor in spirit we'll come back to the money parables in a second, but want to spend a little more time thinking about the inclusion. You know, in, in, in Matthew, um, the genealogy of Joseph goes back to Abraham, the father of Judaism. And Matthew does, so interesting, because Luke includes women, but not in the genealogy. Matthew includes women in the geolo- genealogy, but few places other than that. Right. So Matthew is the one that includes um, Tamar and Ruth. Um, Luke didn't have them but Luke doesn't go back to Abraham do you notice he goes all the way back to Adam and he says they trace the genealogy back Seth the son of Adam and Adam the son of did you notice it who, who is Adam the son of Adam is the son of God now that's interesting isn't it because of course we know literally Adam is not God's son that's an interesting interesting phrase, though, right? So have you ever asked, who's the son of God, according to Luke? It's Adam. <laughs> anyway, Luke goes all the way back there, which is probably a, a, a Gentile inclusion. The other thing that I told you when we read Matthew, and hopefully y- you noticed it, it's easy to, to gloss over this sort of stuff, right? But according to Matthew, it's David and then Solomon and then um, Rehoboam all the way on through In Luke, it's David and then Nathan. And David didn't have a son named Nathan. David had boys named Adonijah and Absalom and um, Solomon, of course. Nathan's the prophet, the one who, after David, statutorily rapes at a minimum Bathsheba and kills her husband, Uriah the Hittite. Nathan's the one who goes to power and says, You're the man. You're the one who did the wrong deed. So Luke rolls the prophet into the genealogy. Evidence, right, that the New Testament writers aren't always interested in getting the Hebrew Bible factually correct. They're interested in what it represents. So Jesus is the fulfillment of Nathan, even though he didn't come from him. Does that make sense? This is part of Luke's vision right at front, though, and, and part of Luke's inclusion. Another thing that Luke includes marginalized people are tax collectors. So you know, Luke is the only one that has the story about the, the the Pharisee and the publican. That's the King James, the tax collector. They both go up to the temple to pray, right? And and this is a famous story, and we all read this as that the f- the Pharisee was prideful because he says, "God, I'm really grateful. I'm not an alcoholic." God, I'm really grateful I've got all my limbs. I'm grateful I don't have gambling debt and university debt, and I'm really grateful I'm not a drug addict and I don't have H1N1. And I'm really glad I'm not like that guy over there who is a tax collector supporting an evil empire. We usually think that's prideful. I'm really glad I am not any of those things, aren't you? I'm not sure that that gratitude's wrong. Obviously, when the gratitude is a way to make myself better than that person, <laughs> that's no good. Um, but wow, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm really grateful for those things. You can read prayers written at the time of Jesus, and that's a normal way to pray. Um, the publican says, have mercy on me, a sinner, right? And... and, and we usually say, oh, because he meant his prayer. I'm sure the Pharisee meant his prayer. <laughs> I'm sure the Pharisee was grateful he's not a drug addict and an alcoholic and somebody supporting the emperor. I'm grateful for all of those things, aren't, aren't you? I mean, I really am grateful. I'm not just faking it. <laughs> you know, I'm really glad. <laughs> um, the other thing Luke doesn't tell us in the story right is whether the tax collector does that every day goes out and cheats people and supports the emperor, and then comes to the temple and says, have mercy on me, a sinner, and never changes. So we don't know. All we get is one snapshot, right? In that one snapshot, who goes home justified that day? Well, the tax collector does. But remember, the Pharisee didn't need to be justified. He already was. I don't know if that's an inspiring sermon. Because <laughs> obviously I think being grateful I'm not a drug addict should help me have compassion for drug addicts, right? I think the, the gratitude's right, and I think the compassion's right. And I think that in that one scene, right, we, we can really mean a confession, but the question is what do we do with our lives after we confess, right? And that's that's this idea about penance and justification. But notice who gets included, even Benedict Arnold types like tax collectors, go home justified, and Luke. It's, it's kind of it's radical. Matthew is a tax collector, but, but we don't he might have given the business up when he became a disciple. See, so we just we we don't we don't know. You want to talk about some parables in Luke, some poor, poor people parables? There's a parable called Lazarus and Money Bags. Um, <laughs> it's called Deves in Greek. Deves means money bags. So, so, so this is not even a. This is nobody's name. This is clearly a caricature. Okay, and 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 Deves has got so much money in his money bags that he walks around wearing purple all the time. And you should know that. Um, you're not allowed to impersonate officers. The only people who can wear purple—it's not just like rich people. You have to be gentry. Th- th- this is like the the the, the Duke of Salisbury, <laughs> who has landed estates, you know, huge tracts of land, and he's <laughs> making all kind. I'm glad you smiled at that one. Uh, he's making all kinds of income on this, and and then there's Lazarus, who's utterly impoverished to the point that. Um, Dogs are licking him, and it's not like, oh, that's cute. Like, that's just that's disgusting and gross, and he can't do anything about it. And, and he's laying outside sort of the gold-gilded fence. Does the rich man know Lazarus exists? Does he care? We, we don't really know. What we know is um, they die, and Lazarus goes to the bosom of Abraham. Now, it's really easy to say that's heaven, but... Um I've never seen that picture on the flannel board, (laughs) Abraham's bosom, you know, I just didn't know. So he goes to be with Abraham, and money bags goes somewhere where, like, it's, like, arid and warm, you know, and please don't think that's hell, because that concept is just hasn't developed yet, but it's it's not pleasant, and, and he's thirsty, you know, there's no pitchforks, There's no ironic punishments. He's just thirsty, right? So he says, hey, Abraham, send that guy, send that poor man to come give me some water. See, Moneybags doesn't realize, right, that he couldn't take it with him. He doesn't realize that, you know, um, people don't obey him after. They're all dead. That's an interesting thought, isn't it? (laughs) And Abraham says, no, 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 Moneybags. Um, uh, He's he's not going to do that. (laughs) A, there's a big chasm that he didn't cross in, and um, you had good stuff, and he didn't, and, and now you don't, he does. Sounds very Marxian so far, doesn't it, right? The bourgeoisie just got overthrown. And then Moneybags says, <laughs> notice, he doesn't ask Abraham. Uh, Moneybags tells Abraham what to do. Hey, Abraham, just, you just send that poor guy back to my brother's. You know, because, like, he waits on money bag people like us. Like, he, he does what we need. See, you just send him back from the dead, and then they'll be good, you know? And, and Abram didn't quite bristle at the command, apparently, but says, oh, no, listen, they've got the law and the prophets, like, that'll be good, right? And, and money moneybag says, no, 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 but if somebody came back from the dead, then, then they really would believe. And, and Abram says this thing that doesn't seem like it could be right, he says, well, if they didn't believe the law in the prophets, they won't believe even if somebody comes back from the dead. It's a little head-scratcher, because don't you think if someone came back from the dead, you'd be like, whoa, you're back from the dead? <laughs> 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 yeah, I mean, the thing is, right, they didn't care about him to begin with, so why would they care about him now? That's the interesting thing, right, thinking about the context. I mean, th- this, is, this is like... A a peon or a pariah that no one, I mean, do they even know he's dead? So why would they, why would they even care? And then it's not like he's important. They'd call the guards. I mean, what are you doing on our property? Get out of here, you nasty thing that gets licked by dogs, right? I mean, this is an interesting thing about how deep our attitudes about other people run. This is radical inclusion by the way, right? And confronting us I- hyperbolically, right? Nobody's named money bags. Th- this, this is confronting us with these weird realities that we live, that we live into, like what, what, what wealth does to the way we treat other people potentially. And of course, it says this other really interesting thing. We usually think seeing is believing, but sometimes you only see what you believe. This is one of those accommodation, assimilation questions, right? How many miracles do you need to really trust in God? Or do you see the miracles because you've chosen to trust? I mean, people thought the world was flat for a long, 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 long time because that's what they thought. (laughs) Overcoming that was really, really a difficult thing because the weight of tradition was on it. You know, it's really difficult to think critically about. Tradition, so y- you 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 see what you believe. I mean, I think that's r- I, th- I kind of think that's right. I'd like to think I'm a bigger person than that, but I'm but I'm not. This is about stereotypes. So, see, Luke is really interesting because he's a little more social justice than anybody else <laughs> by a large margin, right? I mean, this is very confrontational. I mean, just think through our current social and political climate, right? I mean, Luke's got a lot to say to that. No, and that's why this is a really interesting story, because it's also reversing a a cultural stereotype that rich people deserve to be rich because they're good. And poor people deserve to be poor because they're bad. And that's really easy to see, like in the caste system in India, like y- the reason you're an untouchable is because you earned that in some other life. But, but, but we, uh, maybe I won't talk for you all, I don't know that we buy into it that strongly or explicitly, but um, I think our culture does do that a bit. But I want to say, I'm not sure our culture is actually that different. I think when people don't succeed in high school or college, it's because they're they're losers or they're lazy. I mean, th- these tend to be some culturally embedded assumptions. Yeah. Well, I think what's, what's funny, right, and this is this interesting thing. If you can read this, there's this interesting book called Blind Spot. You've probably heard this before. Did you know your eye has this blind spot? And as you come through, like, like, there's a vanishing point, and it's right in front of you, and you can't see it. It's an interesting thing. I mean, it, and, it, and it's a, like a perfect margin, and everybody has it, and you don't even know you have it. You just don't until you do this little experiment in a, in a book, right? A- and then the book talks about how we have these, these uh, subconscious uh, stereotypes, biases, prejudice that we don't even know about, and the way they, the way they, they tease them out, right, is, is you, like, compare lists. Like, you, you have to go through a list of, like, annoying um, parasites and flowers and you and you have to check the parasite's bad and the flower's good and you just fly through that nobody makes a mistake. But if you say check the parasite's good and the flower's bad it takes like three times as long to complete and there's mistakes. <laughs> so, so this is an interesting thing when they do like prejudice and bias testing is they start you have to check like black women sorts of things bad, and white men sorts of things good, and then you have to reverse it. Um, and, and Anyway, y- I, I, I don't know that this is gospel, but it's an interesting thing, right, to think that, that many of us usually think that we're enlightened and we don't have prejudice, and then you do these, these batteries, and you're like, there must be a mistake in the battery, <laughs> right, because I'm not like that, and, and, and we are. And and I don't know again that people back then were as explicit with their belief either. But mm-hmm. this is what they believed. Wealthy people worked hard, they made good decisions, they you know, they had grit. Poor people deserved to be poor for some reason. I mean they could have at least been middle class. You know, I mean this I've is that what's that? Sure. It's not vanished. It's not vanished, right? Not vanished. Yeah. So I think, I mean, I think Luke will preach to us too, right? I mean, th- the hard thing is how do we become aware, how do we become aware of, of our implicit biases and what do we do about it when we're, when we're aware? And these sto- and th- you probably want to move on. The, the, these stories, I think, real, go real deep that way. Um, so that's money back's. Luke has the strangest story, I think, in like the New Testament. It's called the unjust steward. If I can recap it for you, Um, (laughs) there's a farmer who has a steward, a bookkeeper, and all the clients go to the owner and say, your bookkeeper is scattering your property. The owner says, you're fired. (laughs) And the bookkeeper says, great Scott. Uh, What (laughs) Well, I do. I'm too proud to beg, and I'm too weak to work. I know. And his plan is, he goes to people and writes down their debt. So you owe my master 50 jugs of olive oil, but it's not jugs. It's like 50-gallon drums. So take the 50 and make it 30. You owe my master four truckloads of wheat. Make it three. He does exactly what he was accused of. He scatters his master's resources, and then the master finds out and says, good job. (laughs) Now I don't know what the story means. Sorry, I don't know what the story means. And then Luke goes on to say, listen, the children of this world are shrewd in using their things much more so than the children of light. So. Use your things to build eternal dwellings for each other. Except the Beatles taught us that money can't buy me love, right? So, so, so how do you buy friends and influence people? Uh, this is a confusing story. I one time tried to write a paper about this so that I could like figure it out, and I didn't do well. Um, <laughs> I didn't do well. I read like a hundred different commentaries on this thing, and there just was nothing really great. One time I went into church, and I heard somebody preach about this who was a prison chaplain. You know, it's a government ministry in some ways. So at the end of the year, if you've got money left in your account, you must spend it. Otherwise, you'll have a smaller budget next year, right? Um, so we didn't exactly need these, but it would have been nice. He bought some bookshelves to go in, like, the chaplain or the chapel office, right? And the problem was that was on the second floor, and... It was like a six-foot ceiling going up the stairs and a narrow door, and of course they came (laughs) preassembled. So the chaplain's just sort of looking at this disaster, not knowing what to do, his budget on the lines for next year, he's got these shelves that he kinda really decided that he wanted, and that would be really, really helpful what to do. And then one of the prison clients who had been imprisoned for grand theft (laughs) said, chaplain you give me two blankets and four inmates and i will get those shelves (laughs) into the chapel that is how he had got into prison don't you see so what he did was he used his unsavory skills for the kingdom of god and got the bookshelves in the chapel Uh, maybe the parable is talking about something like that although that one's still sort of confusing because i don't know how you use grand theft auto to like help the Lord's cause, but, but, but maybe that's how. You smuggle cars into the chaplain's office. Uh, th- that's a vexing one. That's a really tough one. It's very much about rich people and poor people, because the steward has no resources. When he says, I'm too proud to beg, and I'm too, I'm too w- weak to work, what he means is, if he gets fired from this job, all he can do is go dig holes every day, or work in a coal mine, and the coal mine will kill you. Uh, digging holes will kill you. Uh, if it just injures you, then you'll have to beg. You, you <laughs> you see this is a natural progression for poor people, is you get worked to death, and if you get hurt and can't work yourself to death, then you beg to death. So, so sort of a social commentary in the back that we, we usually forget. This is not an accountant or a CA. This is a peasant who somehow is keeping books. Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting thing, right? And tha- it's really interesting that the master tells him good job when he finds out that he's forgiving debts that aren't his to forgive, right? I mean, that's why he got fired in the first place. So it's a strange story. Listen, if, if you know what it means, I would be grateful to learn from you, but I'm real. it's, And the more I think about it, actually, the more vexing it is. A lot of these things I told read a hundred different, critical or they, they leave something out or they assume something that <laughs> seemed like you, that to make it say what they wanted to say. I think the batteries are dying. Sorry, you're going to knock me out. If you're not asleep already, this is going to be <laughs> really helpful for you. Um, <laughs> maybe I can do something really fun for you instead of this one because I, I probably shouldn't have shared how tough that one was. Let's talk about the prodigal son. This is a fun one, because we all know this story, right? We know that story. But, um, you know, in, in Matthew, there's the parable of the lost sheep, but you don't get the son of the coin. In Luke, you get three in a row. And it's really important that the prodigal, the prodigal son comes last. One, two, three, because they're really a continuation on the same theme. So prodigal son is really a bad title, because the first one's about the lost sheep, and the second one's about the lost sheep coin and the third story is really about two boys that are lost not prodigal they're lost and that's, that's key I'm going to build my case so the sheep many of us are just completely unawares of good shepherding practices because <laughs> we don't see sheep um, we don't eat sheep you know we would never do that if someone took a picture of a lamb they bought at a 4-H fair on a book and said they were going to eat the sheep, many people would be horrified Because <laughs> we counter And we, we kind of don't realize that domesticated animals are genetically different from wild animals. right? So, so a, a wild animal that puts up with you is tame, it's not domesticated. Cats are tame. They don't need you. <laughs> <laughs> they never did, they never will. Dogs are domesticated. They actually need human beings. Wol- dogs and wolves have different DNA, right? I mean, it's, it's sort of been inbred into them through human treatment. Domesticated sheep are different from wild sheep for lots and lots of reasons. One thing domesticated sheep will do is overload the carrying capacity of the ground because they're, they're just They rely on human beings to move them, and if humans don't, what they'll do is they'll eat the blade of grass, and then they'll eat the root, and then there will be no more grass, and then they starve to death. So the shepherd has to move them to make sure that in a couple of weeks, another. So they they eat the blades, they move to more blades, and back, and there's more blades. And without the shepherd, the sheep will kill themselves. They will eat themselves. This is is accurate, right? Um, And... Hundred sheep. One of them gets away. Who's fault? Fo- the way I grew up, it's that darn sheep. It's the shepherd. The shepherd were paying attention. To his job. It caught the sheep before it wandered off. Cause that's the shepherd's job. Sheep don't lose the f- leave the flock to be bad or because they're teenagers, or because they're doing some wanton rebellion. They do it because they're just so reliant on the dang shepherd, and if the shepherd doesn't intervene, then it must be okay. So off it goes. And then the shepherd realizes there's a problem. (laughs) I've lost a sheep. Now, risk analysis says, write that one off, (laughs) because the other 99 sheep without a shepherd will overload their carrying capacity or they will also wander off. The shepherd's job is to keep the flock. This beautiful idea of the animal world that if a wolf it will eat only what it needs. The wolf will kill every sheep, every single one and only eat one because that's all it can eat, right? So they go into a feeding frenzy. I know in wild sheep that's different cuz wild sheep know to run away. <laughs> domestic look at wolves and go like, nah which <laughs> just not convincing for the wolf, right? So 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 this the bad shepherd The Bad Shepherd is so lost law- averse he he's willing to risk ninety nine and he runs off to get the other one. I'm one of those ninety nine sheep and I can tell you this makes me very angry. The shepherd should cut his losses <laughs> And stay with When he finds the sheep, right? He throws a party. Look the sheep that I lost. I found it. So it's all about the lost being found. No real shepherd does this. This is a hyperbole of how loss averse the shepherd is. The next story is about the lady with coin. That bad coin, why did it run off? Can you the nerve of that coin to hide itself under the couch? Of course, the lady dropped the coin. It's it's her fault. The coin had nothing to do with it. It just got lost. So she sweeps the house until she can find it, and then she tells all of her neighbors, look, I found my coin, and they say, like, (laughs) leave me alone, right? I mean, it's like going to your neighbors and saying, I couldn't find my bifocals, and they were on my head. That would be endearing, right? But it's it's doubtful that they would, like, want to make you cake. I mean, (laughs) you know, I mean, (laughs) cute story. Then you get to the kids, and see, we treat this one differently because they should know better. You've heard, if you've been to church before, um, the younger child wants his inheritance now, which is, I guess I've heard this harshly put as he's saying, I wish you were dead, but really he's saying, you know, I'm just ready to make my name for myself. He's Second-born son, he gets ten percent of the assets, or at most thirty percent. He doesn't get half. He says, "Dad, I, I just want my inheritance now." Dad settles accounts, which means dad doesn't own anything anymore. The first-born gets the ninety between ninety and seventy percent. The second-born gets the residual. And out of first-born's good nature, dad can continue to live in the son's house. So dad owns nothing. This is important. He settled the assets. The story reads that way. The younger son goes off and squand. The elder son is sure that means prostitutes, but the story is not that. He could have played the commodities market. That is wild living. No too well. You can go to bed a millionaire and wake up and not even own your, right? I mean, orange futures and there was a frost. That is wild living. He could also have thrown some to his banquet. We just don't know. He just lost all the money. And then he starts doing a really abysmal thing. This is how lost he is. He is working for pig farmers wishing he could eat pig food. Very degrading as a Jewish person. He comes to his senses one day and says, My senses, (laughs) my father had many slaves who ate much better than I do. I'll just go be a slave. He, He forgets. His father doesn't own anything anymore. So he cannot be his father's slave because his father doesn't own slaves. The father has been looking for the boy apparently since he left. Foolishly looking day after day because as soon as the boy appears on the horizon, he does say something un-Middle Eastern and runs to meet him. Middle Eastern people don't run anywhere. (laughs) Let me tell you, especially not after sons who have squandered all their money in wild living. The boy starts to say, I've sinned against you, but please notice the father is not listening to any of that. He immediately commands the slaves that belong to his eldest son (laughs) to go and get a ring that is not his and a robe that is not his and kill a fattened calf that is not his, to celebrate this son. The eldest son is very upset. He says, "These all these slaves wouldn't even give me a bagel. <laughs> right? And the father says, you know, what's mine is yours. The elder son never seems to realize that the father actually didn't own anything anymore. <laughs> the father had divested everything, and all that stuff was his. The father says, uh, we had to do this because, you see, your, your brother was dead, and now he's alive again. And, of course, we know that's figurative. The boy wasn't dead. He was lost, don't you see, and now he's found. And, of course, at the end of the story, we know one son has been found, but we don't know if the other one has. And in each story, we get this impersonation or this impression, hopefully, that if the story is about God, God's not waiting for people to feel sorry or show real penance. God foolishly rushes out to celebrate the lost being found. Now in Matthew... That boy would have had to earn it back. Not in Luke. And Luke isn't interested in prodigals. Luke is interested in lost people. And that's a As really you know, I'm related to people who make really awful decisions, like they squander their resources in wild living. It's been really helpful for me compassionately to think that they're not prodigal, they're lost. I've been lost before. Like, you know, like driving around, I've been lost. You've been lost before. It's pretty, pretty awful. <laughs> you know, imagine just being lost all the time and making crazy decisions because you're lost, right? And, and it's about lost people being found. I mean Luke really seems to care about these people at the bottom getting new life. And judgment is thrown out the door right? Judgment's thrown out the door. It's about lost people being found and reconciliation happening even when it's not possible to happen. By the way, I'm the older son in the story. Most of you are too because it's like you come to church. <laughs> this, this, is, this is proof of typecasting, you know. You may not be as petty as I am but I sort of think that those people that just want to, you know come and have a donut without going to the service I've been to those places. I mean people show up at the coffee hour who did not come to church and you know, it was like, What are you doing here? <laughs> you gotta earn that donut. You know, it's just so <laughs> that's my J. It is, it sure is. Yeah. Luke's got messages that continue today, right? And, and and what's interesting, right, and we've been talking about this in adult forums, right, is who sacraments are for. Are sacraments for living people or are they f- for dead people? Are they for God or are they for us? Right? And and is God's grace offended or are we just offended? Sometimes we get offended on God's behalf, but God can like take care of God's self. You know, like this is something we don't usually think through very carefully, you know? (sighs) You ever seen somebody like take the wafer from the priest instead of waiting to get it? You ever seen anybody take it? Really? <sighs> Come to day school chapel sometime. And I'll tell you what, there's people when they say, they say, oh my good Lord, they shouldn't be allowed to eat it. They took it from the priest. I mean, I was going to give it to him anyway, you know. I usually think it's a little strange because I know I'm going to give it to him. But I, it doesn't really bother me either way. But what's interesting is, that. <laughs> oh, can you believe they took the wafer? They didn't just wait. You've never heard people say things like that? No? (laughs) Oh, all right. (laughs) Good. I shouldn't (laughs) spoil... Good. I I shouldn't spoil it for you. There's people that do it, and there's people that hate people for doing it. You know, it's like the biggest problem in America today is when people go to take the wafer from the priest. (laughs) 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 Yeah, I just... (laughs) Now that'd be a major problem. <laughs> I got more though, so as long as I don't take everyone, we're, we're good. I mean, I, 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 I will tell you this. I, I was. I mean, could have been here, could have been somewhere else. I had a teenager acolyting. They were wearing shorts. They had on loafers, and I heard somebody say, "Look at that acolyte wearing shorts." <laughs> it's like, I'm c- you do it. I, you do it. This <laughs> is unbelievable. You know, like we would think. T- to be scandalized by that, <laughs> you know, like, instead of like, I'm really glad church has become more accessible, you know, like that would be a different thing to say. But to be scandalized that the acolyte would dare in 85-degree weather wear shorts under their hot, non-breathing polyester gown, the nerve. I mean, the biggest problem in America today is acolytes who don't wear pants. but this stuff is this stuff is you know I just want to say this stuff is here and I think sometimes it's helpful for you to hear these silly church stories because if we heard the truth about ourselves we wouldn't laugh we'd be outraged about the things we get indignant about and we just we would (laughs) <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the best part about you know the best part about having Ari, if you know her, she graduated last year, is that her hair often changed with the liturgical season, right? I mean, it would be red, it would be purple, it was fantastic, right? It was great. Yeah, I know it's this crazy thing, though, right? Isn't it? It's a kind of crazy thing. That's older son behavior, older son behavior, right? In the story, uh, to say like you can't do it because you know, yeah. Oh, I know, I know. That's what I mean, older son behavior. The acolyte master is like the older son in the story, yeah. Okay. um, I don't know what else we should talk about in Luke. Jesus doesn't suffer much on the cross. You know, he doesn't say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Do you notice? He doesn't give a loud cry and give up his spirit. He just sort of gets on the cross, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. That's just Luke. And he says, today you'll be with me in paradise. And then he says, <sighs> it's finished. Not a real big emphasis on suffering. And that could be because of the emphasis on on poor people, right, who's, who sort of live the crucified life on a regular basis. You, you'll find New Testament scholars that make that argument much more succinctly than I just did. Yes, ma'am. Okay. Yeah, that's the tradition. That's the tradition. Luke's a doctor. But in this morning, like, oh, he's educated. Doctors put leeches on people and, and like, cut them. You know, I mean, <laughs> you know, they, they had too much cholera, so they'd just give them a good bleeding. You know, I mean, th- this so I guess he was educated in that. We, we don't really know, because the, the, the truth is, we don't know if Luke wrote it. We know tradition ascribes it to Luke, but we don't know. We know whoever wrote it clearly has this really I just think almost like Isaiah does when Isaiah's got Isaiah takes grace like so seriously that even natural predators can be reconciled, like wolves and lambs. And Luke takes this like fundamental quality of people so seriously that he includes Samaritans and poor people and, and tax collectors and women and people who should never be forgiven, they get forgiven. I mean, Luke takes all that real seriously. He even changes settings. You know, in Matthew, Jesus gives a sermon on the mount. In Luke, he talks to them on the plane, emphasizing the egalitarianism, right? I mean, it's a a pretty strong vision that permeates the book of of how Jesus acts and, and who he's in favor of and and golly obviously um, we've got we got room to grow from this right I mean Luke Luke, Luke is like again it, it is it is ex- the social justice soundtrack <laughs> and you get to acts which is a continuation it, it just it continues acts is about God's grace overcoming every human boundary possible all of that Please. Instead of on his head yeah. when he's anointed at Bethany? Yeah. This is worth looking at for sure. This is the woman who weeps and kisses her feet and then um, puts ointment on his feet. Um, But doesn't that story get repeated? Um, Well, maybe it only happens one time. For some reason, I thought that the story gets... Repeated. This is why it's important. I can't even keep all of this stuff straight. She puts it much earlier, right? The other gospels put it right ahead of Holy Week. So this is a change in sequence. It still is a woman who does it. Notice that she's known to be a sinner, too. Um, how do we get to that? I think there's an, an one of the Gospels says Mary does do it, but Luke doesn't say that. Luke says it's a woman in the center, and she's essentially forgiven. Jesus forgives her for for showing him hospitality, right? So he does the ano- the whole um, Messiah making different from the other two people in a different sequence. Uh, this is a good observation. It still happens, just at a different point and with a different emphasis, right? Because in this story, it's a sinful woman, and at the end, she's forgiven. In the other stories, sh- Jesus is anointed by this woman to be the Messiah right before Holy Week. And I, I just reviewed, and it doesn't happen in Luke right before Holy Week. It's moved way back. It's good to say that the writers are, are doing different things with the same core stories. I hope that's helpful to say. And, and it's maybe helpful to, to consider the Bible tends to do this as a whole because the Bible is interested in the meaning of the stories, not biting its nails over getting every detail in the proper sequence. Does that make sense? We have different worries historically than the Bible does. and Sometimes we superimpose that over this and say, well, which one's right? And the answer is, Yes, right. <laughs> yes. Um I, you know, I, I there's plenty more we 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 can choose to talk about or not. Maybe I can just give you a couple other highlight stories that aren't in the other ones and then see 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 where you go. Um the the widow and the unjust judge, right? Uh there's, there's a widow who has no power, and there's a judge who has, like, lots of power. Judges sit at the city gate, not in courtrooms in general, and she keeps coming saying, give me justice. And by the way, we don't know that her case is just. <laughs> we just know he's wearing, she's wearing him out. And maybe she's going to make him look bad because people keep seeing this widow ask for justice, and they're going to start to assume she's not getting it. And then they want a different person to be judged. And he says, look, I, I, like, I'm the best judge there is. I'm not afraid of people. I'm not afraid of God. I am completely unbiased. But I'm going to lose my job over this lady, so I'm just going to sell her case. <laughs> and of course, that's told to say how they should pray and not lose heart. So is God like the judge and we have to pester God to get what we want? I've spent years of my life praying like that. I don't mean I believed it, but I prayed like that. Like I had this thought that if I didn't pray every day, then God wasn't going to do it. Ever, anybody ever had that thought? <sighs> what a terrible image for God. Isn't that awful? As if the healing of our family and friends in the world depended on whether or not we just kept showing up in prayer. Maybe God's the widow who asks us over and over and over and over again to change to pick a different trajectory that's just, I don't know. The sad thing is, right, we say, "Oh God's not like that, judge." But most of us that's how we pray. <laughs> like we got to keep going back or God won't do it. I don't know what to say after that except <laughs> I think it's I think that's a fit way we use or misuse or live into the scary parts of this or or whatever. You notice there's a story about the the party. So, somebody's (laughs) going to have a really big party, and the guests have really lame excuses. And you should know back then, if you went to someone's banquet, you kind of were obligated to return the banquet. Hey, nothing's really changed. (laughs) Uh (laughs) Right? (coughs) And so, in some ways, these people don't want to go to the banquet because they don't want to have to re banquet. Their excuses are terrible. I just bought some land, and I need to look at it. I know about two people that would buy land without looking at it, <laughs> like ever. And they would, which is sad, but, but, uh, but I know about two people. I just bought some oxen, and I need to try them out. Again, I know two people that would buy a car without driving it. <laughs> I, but, but you might know two people as well, but there's not many. Um, I just got married, you sort of knew this was happening for a long time. So instead, the master decides that the party is just really good, and now there's room. So just fill the room, because parties are more fun with more people, and the master invites people who can never pay the party back, they can never rebanquet. so since they can't pay it back, they just choose to enjoy it. (laughs) That makes for a really good party, you know? The, the, the kind that, like, has no obligation to it, so it can really be festive. And, and all the original guests, it turns out, like, they were so afraid of missing an obligation that what they really missed was enjoying a fantastic party. Now, how many of you feel really obligated We'll start really easy. I'm not doing you have to raise your hands. How many of you are really obligated to return a gift if somebody gives you one? Me. How many of you feel like you really are obligated to pay back God's grace? And that makes it a whole lot less fun, doesn't it? It makes it a lot less of a party and makes it really obligatory. I mean, isn't that the great thing about grace? It really is supposed to be a gift to be enjoyed, not a gift with strings attached to require you to do years of indentured servitude toward. I mean, aren't the best gifts the ones that you're just supposed to enjoy and you know you don't got to give anything back? You often do, mainly because you don't have to. My spiritual life is not like that. I feel very obligated (laughs) a lot of the time, which is probably why the good news I have to share with the world is usually mixed news and not always good. I think that'll preach. (laughs) You might hear that in year C. I'm even trying to get my head around it right now. But doesn't that seem to be right? And part of the reason that faith is sometimes depressing is because we're supposed to do stuff that we don't do, can't do. And we miss the the party. Now, in Matthew, the story is real different, and this is helpful to highlight. (laughs) In Matthew, it's a a king's feast and people are opposing him being king so he kills them all that day and then has the party and and because he's killed them there's empty seats so um, his soldiers go out with swords and like wheel people out of the hospital in gurneys you know (laughs) they like force people to pack the coronation party and some guy shows up in clothes that aren't good clothes and he throws him out that's a Matthew story if people get thrown out it's not Luke This is an interesting thing. I used to, when I was in seminary, I'd read verses and I had to say what book they came from. Not because I was expected to memorize the book. I was expected to know the themes. People don't get thrown out in Luke. Okay, I, I don't I don't want to fill the time that I promised we could get down early if there's nothing else that's majorly interesting to you. Say more about the transfiguration for you. Do you see the transfiguration being really different in Luke as opposed to in Matthew and Mark? Oh, okay, okay. If you're reading the the Daily Linton blogs, you'll get to read about the transfiguration. Um, I, I, you know, I don't like the story. I'm just going to be honest with you. The transfiguration, I just think it's strange because in Luke, and, and here's the interesting thing, in all the gu- in all in all three. They have this vision of Jesus in glory, and then they go right down the mountain and fail. A father's got a boy who's possessed by an unclean spirit that throws him down on the ground, and and they can't drive it out. And Jesus says, I mean, they just have this vision of Jesus being this high, transcendent being, and they have no idea what to do with it. it. It doesn't make their belief any stronger, or their ability to do things from belief any stronger, and, and I think like it's a great story in that it shows Jesus represents the law and the prophets, but well you knew that anyway <laughs> so uh, this came before Lent, I mean I, I like it probably because it was my newest idea, and it's probably real heretical, and you, you read it in the blog if you want to um, but there's this really issue the voice says, this is my son whom I love, listen to him listen to him, it doesn't say who the voice is talking to See, in the transfiguration, Jesus shows up, and he's talking to Elijah and to Moses. I wish I knew what he was saying. In my imagination, he's saying, Moses, remember when you said not to work on the Sabbath? Come on, man. If your donkey falls in the well, you pull it out. And, hey, Elijah I know how you challenged like the king, right? But remember when you like slit the throats of the 500 prophets of Baal? I mean, two wrongs don't make a right. I wondered if that's what kind of conversation they were having. Yeah. And I wonder if God isn't telling Moses and Elijah to listen. Maybe God, the voice is talking to all of them. And this is going to sound real crazy. I mean, I'm really growing away from my my upbringing here when I say maybe the voice is encouraging us as children of God to have really strong conversations with the Bible. It doesn't mean disagreeing in a profligate way, right? But, I mean, Jesus disagrees with the law when the law gets in the way of larger life. The law is a container, it's a way of walking, but some people fall off the road, and what do you do? So, you know, I'm positive the Bible says not to wear clothes of two different fabric. I'm positive, that's biblical, but I just disagree. I mean, I like I can't iron, and this is like more presentable, you know? It's reasonable, and and frankly, it's more life giving for you because if I showed up all wrinkled in my linen shirt, I mean, I would be in even worse (laughs) spectacle than I am now. And you deserve some dignity from your cleric, you know? I mean, you don't need monogramming, but a little dignity is nice, you know? And that's a silly one. And it sort of got to the point, I mean, I never could have said this 10 years ago because I. Like, it was really important for me that the Bible not explicitly say women are second-class citizens in the world. But here's the point I am now. If the Bible did say that, I would disagree with it. And I think I'd be right. And that's a conversation I'm really happy to have with the church (laughs) and with the Bible. And I wonder if that's what the Transfiguration is all about. The disciples have never heard people have that kind of conversation, whatever Jesus was saying, with the law and the prophets. And they want to build a, a, a tabernacle there. Instead of being tabernacles. Who go around and say, because I'm beloved by God and you're beloved by God, because we're God's beloved children, let's listen to each other and let's, let's figure this out. I mean, Jesus, his his conclusion, right, is that the human beings aren't made for the Sabbath, but the Sabbath is made for human beings, right? And you could easily substitute the word Torah, right? We weren't made for the Torah. The Torah was made for us. And because all of us have been going to church for more than a few weeks, more than a few years. I mean, we we are all acutely aware of human beings that have been badly burned by churches, by clergy, by things that, you know, decide that God's grace is so easily offended. We have to protect God. You know, God can't stand up for God's self, so we'll do it. You can't come to the rail. You can't get married in our church. You can't get buried here. You weren't baptized enough, right? I mean, these are the sorts of things that we do, right? And 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 try having a conversation with that, you know blasphemy, but but here's Jesus doing that, you know he's that's what he's doing, and the disciples just aren't ready to hear it uh, and I think the question is like are we are we ready? are we ready to hear it? Are we ready to do it? I don't mean like overthrow the Bible, I don't mean that I mean like like. Do what it already does with itself. Like, has conversations. Well, I mean, no, I don't think it's even just parts, right? I mean, I think part of the thing that's really holy about the Bible is that it it does disagree with itself. Ezra says, throw the foreign people out. Ruth says, don't do that. (laughs) Sometimes you might need to do that. Not all the time. It's the way, you know, this is that... Weird thing is, like, the when and the how really, really matter. And we don't have the when and the how conversations. We usually have the what. And and the when and the how, like, I think are the most important parts about my job. Because I can tell you, like, in general, I think a lot of priests have a really great idea of what we should do. What we struggle with is when to do it and how to do it, (laughs) like, how to get people together. To, to do a vision that would give us a little more life. I mean, I, you know, even bad priests, I think they have some understanding of, of how we could have some more life together, which is we t- what we botch <laughs> is how to do that and when. And that's, that's the hard bit. And, you know, like that's a critical conversation is how and when. Like, are we ready to do that or not? Well, I think that's the hope for the Episcopal Church, right, is willingness to have that, willingness to have the conversation. There's this really great line in the United Church of Christ. I don't know if you've heard The United Church of Christ, that's, the, that's like, uh, their tagline says, God is still speaking. I mean, that's really an interesting tagline, you know, as in God is still willing to have a conversation with us if we just, we'll just keep talking. I, I wonder if the transfiguration couldn't be about that. Is that really what it meant? Probably not. <laughs> but I think that's a good meaning. <laughs> Which is why the Bible's really great, right? As long as the meaning's good, then, then it is. <laughs> okay, promise we get out early, and look, we did, five minutes early. Next week we'll read John, and, and I'm gonna warn you, John talks a lot. I mean, he's like me. Okay, <laughs> uh, that's tw- lesson 22.